This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 27, Leviticus chapters 8 through 11. So Moshe inducts Aharon and his sons, washing them with water before dressing them all in the appropriate regalia, anointing them and the dwelling with the appropriate oil, and sacrificing the appropriate bull for the chatat, along with two rams and a basket of matzot. After the offering up, blood dashing and applying and burning up of fats and meats and matzot as an elevation offering, Moshe instructs Aharon and his sons to eat some of the boiled flesh at the entrance of the tent of appointment, along with the, quote, bread that is in the basket of mandating, and burned whatever is left, and then remained within the tent for seven days and nights. Chapter 9 reports what happens on the eighth day. Moshe calls out Aharon and his sons and the elders of Israel and begins another round of offerings, another chatat, another offering up, quote, affecting atonement on behalf of yourself and on behalf of the people, and a grain gift turned to smoke on the altar as a, mo- as a morning offering up and an ox and a ram for shalom with the associated blood dashing and innards immolating. Then Aharon blesses the people. And soon after, Moshe and Aharon enter the tent of appointment, come out, and bless the people again while the fire, quote, went out from the presence of Adonai and consumed upon the slaughter site the offering up and the fat parts. When the people saw this, they, quote, shouted and flung themselves on their faces. But this fire would consume other things, namely the sons of Aharon, Nadav and Avihu, who in the beginning of chapter 10 introduce what the text describes as an outside fire, you can't see the air quotes, or strange fire. There's the air quotes again. Aharon is left speechless while his nephews drag what's left of Nadav and Avihu's bodies, quote, from in front of the holy shrine to beyond the camp. But before Aharon and his remaining sons can begin to mourn with all the accompanying rituals, Moshe tells them to remain in the entrance to the tent of appointment. All of Israel will mourn. And while Aharon and his sons linger at the entrance, Moshe lectures Aharon about proper priestly behavior. Mainly, don't drink while on the job. Moshe further instructs Aharon and Elazar and Itamar, quote, his sons that were left, about the grain gift and how the priest's portions should be eaten in a holy place. But the priest's portions of the elevation offerings can be eaten in any pure place. But before any explanations are offered about the chatat, Moshe realizes that Elazar and Itamar have burned it all up, and he is angry, railing against the brothers for not eating their portion of the chatat on site, as the eating is an essential part of the purgation process for the whole nation, and because, once again, the Kohanim are not following instructions. But Aharon steps in and explains that considering what happened earlier with the immolation of Nadav and Avihu within the dwelling and their corpses making the confines tame and all, perhaps it was not a good idea to eat the holiest of holy portions there. Moshe, quote, hearkened and it was good in his eyes. Chapter 11 breaks down what folks today refer to as the laws of kashrut, or kosher laws, or the rules of proper Jewish eating. In short, eat cattle, or goats, or sheep. Everything else is unclean. If you prefer fish, then only those with fins and scales. Everything else is unclean. Birds? Well, it's a bit unclear. There are no criteria, just a list of the unclean. The same goes for flying insects and, quote, swarming creatures that swarm on the earth. And touching their dead carcasses or touching something that touches their dead carcasses also makes you tame. And to drive this point home, the concluding verses 46 and 47 state, quote, This is the instruction for animals, fowl and all living beings that stir in the water, 
all beings that swarm upon the earth, that there may be separation between the Tame and the pure, between the living creatures that may be eaten and the living creatures that you are not to eat. So, there's a lot to talk about in this week's portion. Let's get to eat. I mean, let's get to it. This week's uh, portion is a container store special. If you like ordering and classifying your stuff into plastic boxes and then labeling them with your trusty brother P-Touch, Leviticus 11 is for you. And even if you're not the fanatic Martha Stewart home and garden type, you have to acknowledge that this categorizing tendency has some merit and utility. I mean, back in the pre-internet age, the technique was very useful as it helped pre-Google humans determine what was safe and clean and what was dangerous and dirty. And darn it, it saved lives. So chapter 11 generally sorts all animals into three categories. There's the land animals, the sea animals, and the sky animals. And this is a division that harkens back to Genesis in the creation story. And within each category, there is an exemplar against which all other animals are measured. In other words, there's the ideal edible animal in each realm, and any animal that does not fit the type is regarded as taboo. And, and this ideal type is meant to limit choice. That is, God does not want the Jews to be like the Chinese who, as they say in Guangzhou, will eat everything that swims except the submarine, everything that flies except the airplane, and everything with four legs except the table. God commands restraint. Sad anymore. I gotta get out of here. I gotta get out of here. Calm down. Get a hold of yourself. Stewardess, please let me handle this. I'm gonna get out of Calm down, now get back to your seat. I'll take care of this. Calm down. Calm down. Get a hold of it. Don't be your one on the phone. Everything's gonna be all right. Please. Sit down. Please. Now handle this. So, as cattle is considered the ideal land animal, as it is the best suited for offering up, all other land animals are measured against the cattle's defining criteria, being a four-legged ruminant with split hooves. Many biblical scholars have argued that these criteria came first, then the anomalies came later. Jacob Milgram, in his weighty tome on Leviticus 1-16, through stated that as the pig was taboo to begin with, the criteria of cud-chewing was added specifically to exclude it from fit foods. The rock badger, the hare, and the camel were simply collateral damage. Sea animals, that is fish, as I said before, need to have fins and scales. And birds, well, yeah, the birds. Some are edible and some aren't, and some split into three little blue ones that chirp and smash into things. In the final analysis, Jews are only permitted to eat cattle, sheep, goats, several kinds of fish, pigeons, turtle doves, several other non-raptorial birds and locusts. So why not simply list these menu choices and leave it at that? Unless Jewish dietary law is also about something else. Oh, I don't know. You know, like maintaining separation between the tameh and the pure, the edible and the taboo. Now, where did I read that? Oh, oh, yeah. You know, I talked a lot in the previous episode about this opposition of Tameh and Tahor, generally rendered into English as ritually impure and, I guess, ritually pure, as well as the opposition of Kadosh and Chol, generally rendered into English as sacred or separate and the everyday. 
in how Chol and Tahor only exist in opposition to Kadosh and Tameh, and how the Torah legislates the desired direction, commanding that Kadosh sanctify Chol and that individuals diminish Tum'ah to enlarge the realm of Tahara. Here, too, sets of oppositions are lined up. This time, Tahor and Tameh are aligned with the edible and the taboo. But these oppositions also link into other oppositions from last episode, Kadosh and Chol, and not just because oppositions all align nicely. Each section of Kashrut law, which deals with the p-touchification of animals, is preceded by the command to be Kadosh, quote, for I that is God am Kadosh. Do you want to go to war, Malachi? Because we could go to war. No. I'm for real. I'm for real. Kiddushah, as it is understood to be about separation, also involves wholeness and completeness. Think of all those offerings up we discussed in the previous episodes that have to be whole and complete. Or, as we'll discuss later, all the requirements of the Kohen, that he be physically whole and complete. Thus, Confusions or ambiguities, anything which undermines the clear-cut separation or blurs oppositions, cannot be kadosh or tahor or edible. Think of the penguin, a bird who can't fly, or a frog, which is a sea animal that also lives on the land. Coupled with the earlier very explicit ban on eating blood, it can be argued that Jewish dietary law has two central animating principles. Number one. Eating is an act that demonstrates a reverence for life. We are permitted to kill living things as a concession, but not as an entitlement. Thus, we must be circumspect and moderate our appetites. And, number two, eating reinforces separation between Jews and non-Jews. By not eating what non-Jews eat, or with non-Jews, we also do not marry their daughters or take their sons for our daughters. Both principles are meant to help Jews become kadosh. Which, when articulated in this manner, that is, with the Kedushah involving thoughtfulness about our relationship to appetite and to food procurement, kind of sounds rather enlightened sounding. And if you, you know, just if you stop there, well, if you continue to the second point, it sounds rather benighted when you unpack the second principle about separatism and exclusion. But you think about it, one of the most profound ways of maintaining social cohesion and a fostering of collective identity is through commensality, or sharing specific foods with specific people. Score one for gastronomic Judaism. You are what you eat, but more importantly, you are with whom you eat. Now I'm sure you're thinking, how the hell did he make the leap from eating correctly to racism? Well, it's not I who made this leap, but maybe I've connected the dots, so the leap is not really a leap, but more like three or four kind of big steps put together. And I didn't even really connect the dots the sages of the Talmud did centuries ago. Here's but one example. So there's this particular prohibition that's not from the Torah about wine. In the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate of Odazara, folio page 36b, there is much discussion of stam yenam, which literally means their wine. And it refers to grape products, wine or even grape juice, that was handled by non-Jews at any point from the time the grapes were squeezed until they reached the bottle. One part of the prohibition of Stam Yenam is that it is forbidden to drink this non-Jew handled wine out of concern that such behavior, that is, the drinking wine with non-Jews, 
could lead to intermarriage. Hello, this is Frank Bartle speaking to you from New York City. As many of you know, the Bartles and James Premium Wine Cooler is not only perfect as a refreshment, but with meals as well. Ed says it even goes with these big donuts they like to eat here. I personally would not have thought Bartles and James and donuts would go together, much less donuts and fish. But I've tried it myself, and once again, Ed is right. So please continue to enjoy Bartles and James with all kinds of food. And we thank you once more for your support. They were eating locks and bagels, by the way. And so, for the first time in all the episodes so far, we as postmodern, late capitalist Western folk confront what many have argued is Judaism's most intolerant religious practice, endogamous marriage. That is, the practice whereby Jews are enjoined to marry only other Jews. What is the justification for such a practice? Or to rephrase the question, well, what's wrong with intermarriage? So, Chabad's website has this to say. The decision to marry out is perhaps the most telling moment when a person must consider what being Jewish actually means. Is being Jewish simply an accident of birth? Is there a difference between a Jew and a non-Jew? Can one retain full Jewish identity if married to a non-Jewish partner? What if one finds the perfect partner? Loving, caring, considerate, good fun, but unfortunately non-Jewish. If one has found true love, does religion really matter? I love that part where he says, unfortunately non-Jewish. The, the subsequent polemic deploys many of the usual arguments. There's the 3,000-year-old tradition and self-sacrifice argument, otherwise known as Jewish guilt, which has a Shoah-tinged variant about giving Hitler posthumous victories. But that's often considered a bit over the top. We're trying to win over hearts and minds here. So then there's the we're the chosen people argument, the flip side of the self-sacrifice argument, where it's not a sacrifice to be Jewish, but a privilege. Then there's the what about the children argument, which is often deployed with the incompatibility argument and its corollary, the better chances for divorce argument. Aisha Torah, another organization involved in bringing Jews together, portrays it as a matter of values and deal breakers. That is... If establishing a Jewish family and raising Jewish children with strong Jewish values are core values that you hold dear, then the decision to marry a Jew, whether a Jew by birth or a Jew by choice, is the natural outcome. This all sounds very reasonable and, and measured, but of course it posits one of those convenient false dichotomies, where Jews can only turn out Jewish if they're raised in a two-Jew household, or it's game over as if no two Jewish parents' household ever produced a disaffected Jew. Come on! But then, you know, within a couple of screens, we're back to the usual. What these very earnest, proselytizing-slash-outreach Jewish groups conveniently overlook is that intermarriage has been part of the Jewish experience since the beginning. And granted, we do not have numbers about how many Jewish marriages back in Moshe's day involved a Jew and a non-Jew. But then again, the hard numbers churned out by the present-day slew of sociologists are heavily disputed as well. You know, just take a gander at any report from the National Jewish Population Surveyor or Pew Research's Portrait of Jewish Americans. There's really no consensus at all about how many Jews there are. Anyway, you know, I guess the biggest difference is that the folks in Moshe's day had a better sense of defining what a Jew was. Anyway. I digress. Every day brings more surprises. And so there's this article in Nature that came out in October 2013, which essentially carbon dates intermarriage. 
and it goes back as far as at least the 12th century. A team of geneticists led by Martin B. Richards of the University of Huddersfield in England decoded the entire mitochondrial genomes of people from Europe and the Near East. They found that European women and not women from the Near East were the principal female founders of the Ashkenazi Jewish community of Europe. This finding reinforces the idea that many Jewish communities outside of Israel were founded by single men who married and converted local women, and perhaps even in that order. I'll put a link to that, uh, that paper in Nature on the Facebook page and at thenextjew.com. But if you think about it, even the Torah's attitude towards non-Jewish women is a bit variable, as on the one hand, we find numerous examples condemning the giving of your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. But then you have all those instances in the Torah where leading male figures marry women from outside the tribe. You know, technically, the patriarchs didn't marry Jewish women. I mean, they married relatives, some closer, some more distant. But, you know, at least they weren't Canaanites. Joseph, remember him? May I return, May I return to the Yosef married an Egyptian woman, Osnat, and his two sons, Ephraim and Menashe, received the blessing from Yaakov in the place of their father. And we continue, Jewish parents, to bless their sons on Friday night before Shabbat with the blessing that Yaakov gave to Ephraim and Menashe. Moshe married Zipporah, the daughter of Yitro the Canaanite. Ruth the Moabite married Boaz, and Bathsheba was married to Uriah the Hittite before being conveniently widowed and marrying King David. And I don't even want to talk about how many of Solomon's wives weren't members of the tribe. The important point to note here is, as I mentioned before, Osnat and Zipporah and Ruth and Bathsheba were not Canaanites. Although Uriah, Uriah was a Hittite, and the Hittites were one of the seven peoples of Canaan that the Torah condemns as idolaters, fornicators, and sheep diddlers. Oh, okay, not the last one, but you get the point. I don't have any pat or easy answers about this business. However, I don't necessarily equate two Jewish parents with Jewish children with viable Jewish identities, as if identity is something one has or doesn't have. Correlation is not causation as much as many folks would like to think it is. What I do know is that if you're worried about future generations identifying with Jewish tradition and history and embracing its practices and values, you'll need a whiz-bang reason for them to opt in as opposed to scaring them into not opting out. I haven't figured out what that whiz-bang reason is yet, but I am working on it. And I'll keep you posted on my progress. As always, you can leave a comment, question, or quement at the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Tanakhcast. That's T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T. Or at thenextjew.com, or leave a comment, question, or quement at the iTunes store or at Stitcher Smart Radio. 
And while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. You're invited to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 28 on Leviticus chapters 12 through 15. Y'all come back now. Here.